there was a time, a period of time where, and it's like, well, we're not going to be able to fund any element anymore. And if we don't find external funding, then, you know, too bad. It was, it was one of those, oh shit moments where I had a lot of people that I had kind of brought along and communicated the vision and everything. And then now it's, we're running out of cash and damn, like I, like I have no more runway. I need to make something happen. Otherwise this whole thing can just blow up. Welcome to Starter Stories, a podcast that explores the stories behind the world's leading education technology companies and education consultancies and the people who created them. In each episode, you'll hear about the grit, the strategies, the wins, the failures, and the serendipity that transpired to take a half-baked idea and bring it to life. Starter Stories is a podcast of Enrollify, a learning community for enrollment managers and higher education marketers. Explore our other shows like Fanatical Fridays and CRM Prov or access creative ideas on how to better your student recruitment campaigns via our videos, blogs, and e-courses at enrollify.org. I'm your host, Zach Cruz. Enjoy the show. In a moment, you'll meet Artis Kadiu, founder and CEO of Element 451. Artis grew up in a rural farm town in Albania. He has always been a tinkerer. If you were to ask Artis what he wanted to be as a young child, he'd tell you that he wanted to build stuff. He figured out how to build antennas and electrical circuits long before he could drive. Albania was a communist country when Artis was growing up, so his parents weren't able to pursue higher education until much later in life. But in their minds, education was the greatest of priorities. So, when an opportunity presented itself for Artis to leave Albania as a 14-year-old and move to the States, there was no discussion or consideration. They helped Artis pack his bags, and he was on the next flight to JFK. Tune in to access some of the most significant vignettes of Artis' life that propelled him from tinkerer to engineer to businessman to entrepreneur to founder of one of higher ed's most powerful CRMs, Element 451. Without further ado, get ready to meet Artis. So Artis, walk us through your morning routine. Your alarm goes off, and then what happens next? I have a pretty early alarm. <laughs> Typically, my alarm goes on about 5 a.m. Um, I get up. Yeah, it's, um, you know, my alarm usually doesn't uh, ring anymore. So my body has just gotten used to it. So I tend to wake up right before my alarm, which is which is really good. Um, but yeah, I find that I've always been a morning person. I wake up, um, you know, uh, get myself ready, usually walk the dog, have my first cup of coffee. Um, and then as the kids go out to school, um, I then uh, head to the uh, either head to the gym um, or uh, I, I go for a run. So either a four, four or five mile run um, or head and do some uh, uh, some, you know, weightlifting um, and come back home, shower and I'm in front of my uh, just do a little bit of breakfast and then I'm in front of my computer by 830 the Mac, the latest. So that's a good, roughly three and a half hours. What do you love most about before you have to log on? What do you love most about that time? Like, is there, is it the run? Is it the, you know, do you feel like you're on top of the world? You're already beating people by being up a little bit earlier. Or like, is there a specific (laughs) part of the routine that like, you're like, I hold this aspect so dearly. And like, this is, this is my time. Like what's your, what's your favorite part of your morning? Yeah, the the exercising part and having that first cup of coffee uh, while my kids are getting ready to go to school, I think that is um, you know very very dear to me. You know, they they get up, they got a lot of energy. Sometimes they're groggy, but you know, just being there and having that that 10, 15 minutes with them as they're getting ready. Uh, my wife does all of the uh, driving back and forth to school, but that's that's the part that I enjoy the most. Um, and then time to myself, it's really that exercise time, right? Uh, I find it that I can't, you know, I'm a little bit sluggish during the day if if I don't do that. So that gives me that, that energy. Uh, it makes me feel good about myself. It makes me, uh, um, you know, it, there's just, it gives me a lot of energy during the morning. Do you, when you're at the gym or when you're on a run, are you listening to music? Do you listen to <laughs> podcasts? Like what do you, what's playing in the background? Um, 
very rarely I listen to music. So it's either podcasts or audiobooks. Um, there's a few, and I, I switch between two or three audiobooks, which are um, different varieties. So there's fiction, nonfiction uh, in there as well. Uh, a lot of uh, business books, technology business books as well. But, um, and then I have my, my lineup of podcasts as well. So I tend to go one and a half speed on all of them <laughs> so i can get to them a lot quicker um so and uh, you know again it's it, it changes depending on on the season or depending on um kind of what kind of streak i'm on but uh it usually books plus the podcast what is a favorite book or favorite podcast show that you're listening to right now so favorite, uh, I'm listening to two books right now. One is called Lights Out, and that is the um, the the story of how GE um, basically fell during the last uh, decade and a half. Right after uh, Jack Welch took GE to to really high peaks, and then email kind of took it down. So how how does you know a behemoth like that fall? So there's a there's a really interesting um, take on it. So that's that's a really good book, and I'm just finishing that up. Um, and there's a couple other ones that that I've started. Uh, one of them is called Noise, um, mm-hmm. and and that's uh, that's a new one I just started as well. Uh, and that's Daniel Kahneman. So if you're familiar with Danny Kahneman, you know he's he's a really really interesting and insightful um uh economist or so you should definitely listen to some of his uh his thoughts and and readings is he is he the one that wrote thinking fast and incredibly slow and slow yes yes yeah thinking fast and slow that was a that was a great read um i at least listened to a couple of podcasts that were uh really sort of like commentary on the book but i do actually think i read at least at least half of the book it, it's a big book if i remember correctly um it is yeah it goes much quicker as an audiobook sometimes yeah especially so. when you're listening at one and a half speed so that's what yes. i need to do next time um so i'm excited to chat with you today and, and learn a little bit more about kind of who you are how you think and one of the things that's fun about this particular podcast is, you know, a lot of the shows that we have as a part of our network and just a lot of podcasts in general, right? You are supposed to, as the host, kind of come onto the show and deliver a lot of really good thought leadership. You're not really supposed to brag. You're not really supposed to talk too much about yourself or your company. But this segment is different, right? This segment is all about you. It's all about your story and uh, how you've built what you've built. And um, I want to start actually by hearing a little bit about the first job that you ever wanted to have. Not the first job that you actually had, um, but when you were a kid growing up and somebody asked you, what did you want to be when you grew up? Or what did you want to do or work on? How would you have answered that question? What was the first job that you ever really wanted to have? Well, so there is the first job that I remember I wanted to have. And then the first job that you know, my, my parents or, you know, close family friends told me that, um, I, I mentioned as uh, very young in my career, um, I won't say career, not career rather, but as, a, as my childhood. So, um, one of the first things, um, I grew up, um, uh, you know, we moved from a lot of different places when I grew up and, uh, I grew up in, in Albania and, um, you know, in a, rural uh, farm kind of town. And my my parents <laughs> mentioned that sometimes when I was a kid, uh, the guy who always rode the the, the carriage uh, and kind of, you know, bringing produce or whatever, uh, you know, I thought, hey, I want to I want to do that. I want to ride that carriage. So that was that was my first job that folks told me that I, I wanted. But the first one that I remember, the first job that I remember uh, wanting was as a young, um, as a young kid, I was a big tinkerer. So mm-hmm. I uh, was fixing electrical wiring. I was actually building antennas, so TV antennas. So now imagine this was back when, um, you know, we were still having antennas on, on our roofs and I was pretty good at it. So as I was building these antennas, I was taking other appliances apart, 
Um, and I thought to myself, how can I put all these pieces together? I didn't know what it was called at the time, right? So it was it was really this idea of, hey, I can build stuff by putting this electrical, this mechanical things together. And that was essentially what I wanted to do. That kind of evolved a little bit more towards kind of things around, uh, you know, architecture and kind of getting, uh, fitting into that a little bit more. But tinkering was, you know, my first, uh, my first passion. It's like, it sounds a little bit like, you know, real life Legos, uh, right? Like who, who needs <laughs> Legos does. when you can, you know, tinker with the TV antennas. Um, so you grew up in a rural part of Albania. At what point in time did you come to the U.S.? So I didn't come to the U.S. until I was 14. I came here for high school. Um, and that was really a huge, big, big change for me. So, Yeah, and, and I'm curious, what what was that like? Like what do you, thinking back to your 14-year-old self, right? Like what was... Heart. I mean, that's a that's a pivotal age, right? Like you're you're a teenager, right? You've 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 lived your entire life in different places, and now uh, you come to the U.S. Where did you come to New York? Is that where you ended up? Yeah, okay. yeah. So um, I came to my my <laughs> I my first um, uh, my first few steps were went came to JFK. Uh, the first thing that I remember coming here was just very, very crowded and a lot of, a lot of people. Um, at the time, my parents were still back in Albania. So, um, I was fortunate enough to, uh, come here on a, uh, I-20 visa. So this was a student visa at the time. Um, I had done really well in school back there and my uncle happened to be here and he, he happened to put me in touch with a great, uh, private high school. So they, you know, extended a scholarship to me. And then as I 20, I came here during that, during that time, um, Albania during that time. And because it was a communist country and going through the, uh, through the nineties, there was a lot of, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot political unrest going on, uh, everywhere in that region, as you, as you know, with sure. Kosovo and everything else happening. Yeah. So there was a lot of that going on and I we really needed to get out of there. So that was, that was kind of the driver for it. And given the first opportunity, um, that we got, and that's, that's when I came here, it was a huge change for me. First of all, of leaving, you know, my parents, my brother behind, um, coming here, I, spoke very, very little English. And the English that I spoke was really just the one, you know, a year or two that I had taken back home where, uh, it was not really conversational. Like I, it, uh, everybody's speaking so fast in here that you yeah. can really catch up. So, um, but it was, um, the way that I looked at it was as a huge opportunity and, because education was so important to us, it was really that next step for, you know, for me, it was like, I needed to go to a place where education was valued and where I could actually have the opportunity to kind of move beyond just the, the high school or perhaps a, a local college. What did your, your parents do? Like what were, what were, um, what were their careers? So, you know, during obviously before uh, before the '90s, um, like I said, uh, Albania was a pretty um, it was a communist country. So my parents they weren't allowed to uh, go and take their education past high school. So they were um, my mom um, and my dad were both uh, farmers. But then they moved uh, they moved on once once everything opened up in the nineties, they then went back to school and tried to finish. So my mom then became a teacher. Uh, and then my dad, he went to night school and he went through law school and, uh, he eventually became uh, a judge at the time, uh, in Albania. So that's when a lot of the unrest was happening. Uh, and, and because of that, after I came here, he, came after me a couple of years later. And then that, that was the, the change, the political, he got political asylum because of that. 
And that's kind of the reason why, why I'm here today, because otherwise, you know, once you finish high school, you have to go back. But yes, they, the first opportunity they got, they went back to school and they, they tried to finish their, uh, their degrees. And, and they were pretty old at the time. I mean, compare, uh, you know, I, I think my dad was in his mid thirties and same, same thing with my mom, you know, as they went back to school and to finish their degrees. So, I mean, this is a, an incredible story and it, it, you know, just a testament to the power of education and the importance of education. And, you know, it sounds like from an early age, you grew up in a household where education and pursuing opportunity, the, the pursuing the opportunities that uh, presented themselves were, were a priority, right? Were, were a big deal. So much so that your parents were willing, I'm sure this is, must have been devastating for your, your mother in particular, to let you go at 14 and, you know, not just, you know, move to a school a couple hours away, but to move to the United States of America and um, go to school in a completely different context. So yep. do you remember what those conversations were like with your parents before before you moved? Like, was it, were they pushing you? Were they like, no, this is artist. Like you've, you've got to do this. Were you kind of hoping to go or like what, how did they come to, to that decision? Well, there was no choice. Right. So, <laughs> you know, when it came to education, it was, um, you got to do everything possible. You got to be the first in your class. You gotta, you gotta study as much as possible. You cannot have a 90 on your test, like absolutely no 90s. <laughs> um, you're going to participate in every possible, um, you know, competition or every possible, you know, out of class course, whatever it was. So education was like always top line. Now I would go out and play with my friends, but I couldn't do that until I had finished all my homework, done the extra credit and, and all of these things. The, the one thing I remember very vividly, my dad one time, um, this was geography and it was like sixth grade or something like that, where um, it was like a Latin American country. And I just could not remember the precipitation, like how much rain do they get? And, and I see my dad and he was like so disappointed. And he's like, he's like, what do you mean you don't remember this? Like you've been studying it. You know? So <laughs> as, as, you know, as a, as a kid, you remember like those vividly, but, you know, looking back at it now, I can see how he saw that as a, I can't, you know, like I, w I wasn't given the opportunity. So now that he has the opportunity, like you can't not take that opportunity. Yeah. There's no excuse. There's no excuse. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So after high school, if your LinkedIn serves me correctly, you got a bachelor's in computer engineering, a master's yep. in integrated digital media, and an MBA all from NYU. I'm curious, you know, what was it about NYU that compelled you to get not one, not two, but three different degrees there? And, you know, what experiences during your time at school, and I'm sure these were different depending on the degree you were pursuing at the time, which experiences were most formative in, in making you into the person that you are today? Yeah. Um, I'm so jealous of everybody and their college experience and when they go away and they have the four year dorm and, and all of that. So uh, I really look at that enviously sometimes, <laughs> but um, I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't follow the path that, that I had. Um, one of those early decisions was I had after high school, I got many opportunities to go uh, to different engineering schools with scholarships. However, everything was uh, further away from Brooklyn, right? So it was, I had to live on the dorm or uh, maybe it was like a few hours away. So I decided to pick the school with the best reputation closer, closest to the family. So I could actually, you know, help out and be part of that, uh, given that, you know, they, they had just recently moved, moved here. Um, so that was the first decision, right? And then once you make the decision, then uh, NYU at the time, this was the engineering school, right? They had a really great computer engineering program. And I just, that was it. Like I wanted to be an engineer. Um, but as I started going to school, one of the things that I did, that we did, it was, I was on the first inaugural uh, honors program that they had. And they gave us an opportunity to say, 
hey, you can complete both a master's and a uh, undergraduate uh, BS degree in four years. Hmm. However, you have to essentially take, what was it, 120 credits plus 36, like 160 somewhat credits in this four years. So of course, I'm like, yes, I mean, I'm going to make that work because it's I don't have to pay for it. Yeah, two for um, two, get a two degrees for the price of one. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But little did I know that taking 20 credits a semester plus summer <laughs> sessions was going to be, and plus working full time was going to be just such an incredible um, strain. However, the thing that helped me through all of that was um, all the people that I met along the way, right? So I had a lot of great champions at NYU um, and kind of mentors that they kind of propelled me through that. And that's kind of the common thread that I would say in my career and in my education um, that I've always had. There's always been this pivotal people um, that have kind of pushed me along or that have given me the support that I needed to kind of go take the next step. Uh, I remember during my, um, during my, uh, as I started the, the program, I became really close to the person who was um, the director of the honors program. Uh, she ended up, you know, kind of crazy connections. She ended up being the chief of staff uh, at the time. And then, um, once I graduated, she gave me my first job there. Huh. And, um, and, and that's how then I became the director of uh, web and media services at NYU, but she gave me my first job there. And, and it was that connection. And then the professor that I had connected with um, earlier, he was the director of the digital media program. And then another one that I had helped with, uh, the business program, he then became the director of the, of the MBA. And he kind of pushed me along and saying, you need to, you need to take this, uh, this program. So it's, it's really interesting, Zach, you know, it's, it's really the people that you talk to and the people that you're connected with and, um, they become really pivotal in kind of what direction you go one way or another. And I can pinpoint all the major decisions in my life. And I can say there's always been um, those people beside me that have helped me kind of get there. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's so funny that you're sharing this. I was listening to a podcast earlier this morning, actually. And one of the things that the uh, host was commenting on they briefly were talking about higher education and sort of the pros and cons of a traditional sort of like four-year degree. And what the host was saying was that, you know, opportunity, right, is like the first hurdle. Like we need to, we need to increase access to, to opportunity for, for more students. Um, and, but then what I thought was especially interesting, cause you know, you hear that all the time and it's true and more opportunity needs to be, um, needs to be given to folks and access needs to be a little bit more broadly accessible. Um, but the, the other thing he said, which I thought was especially interesting was that, you know, the second thing though, is that you've got to, you've got to find ways in which you can encourage folks to lean into the network, to lean into yep. the relationships that they meet while at college and university. And so What's yep. interesting is like his, I guess the, the bigger point was like opportunity is first, yes. But then after that, like, how do you help equip students, right? With the resources, the know-how to say yes to the opportunities that present themselves, right? To say yes to that professor that says, hey, have you ever thought about this? Or, you know, yes to the staff member that says, hey, there's a job opening here. Like, I think you'd be really good at that. And um, anyways, I think that what's interesting about what you've shared about your story so far is you know, you were fortunate enough to get some, some opportunity and that's great, but right. Opportunity only gets you so far. You had to also be willing to, to say yes to the yeah. bachelor's and master's degree and take a 20 credit semester while also working full time. Right. Like, and that's, and that's where I'm sure like the grit came in, right. Of like needing to, it's one thing to have access. It's another thing to take advantage of that access, right. To, to sort of like maximize the potential of that access. And it sounds like people in your life that you met along the way were helpful in encouraging you to do just that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think that that was key for, for where I am today. And, um, and, and talking about grit, like 
the other part is every time that I met or every one of these mentors along the way, it was kind of the, 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 the thought in the back of my head is like, they're giving me this opportunity. Like I can't let them down. Right. Mm. So, so it kind of continues in that. So I, I basically pushed to, to do the best at whatever I was doing. So not necessarily because, um, there, there was another driver, of course, you know, I'm very competitive. Like I played, you know, sports in high school. I'm a very competitive person. I still am very competitive today in terms of sports and, and everything else. But it, it was, um, you know, th- this idea of moving forward, it was about like, I don't want to let these people down because they, I see it as an investment in me, right? Their time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you're a people pleaser, you know, just like me. It's hard. (laughs) It's it's tough for us sometimes. We'll jump right back into the show after a quick message from this week's sponsor. Video. You know you need it. You know it's all but expected from Gen Z at this point. But you've got no time and little budget. And your Marcom department is two months late on those new program brochures they promised. So asking them to help with a video forget it. But what if video could be as simple as sending an email to a prospective student? Meet Goodkind, a video engagement platform designed to make each one of your prospects feel like they're getting the extra special treatment. As an enrollment manager, you're competing for attention. And in a sea full of static, boring HTML emails from other schools, a personal video is how you stand out and drive action. With Goodkind, you can bring your university faculty, and students to life by designing an engaging, hyper-personalized, and video-first communications journey. Increase applications, increase yield, and decrease melt with the power of Goodkind. Visit wearegoodkind.com forward slash enrollify to book a demo and see just how powerful video marketing can be. Show your face, show you care, see the difference connection makes at wearegoodkind.com forward slash enrollify. Can you talk a little bit about what the Brooklyn Idea Foundry was? Yeah. I noticed this on your LinkedIn and um, would just love for you to share with folks a little bit about what it, uh, what Brooklyn Idea Foundry is or was and a lesson or two that you learned there that you think was especially helpful to you along your journey. So the Brooklyn Idea Foundry was actually my first business. Um, it was, I started it really early on and, uh, this was still in college and it was my, um, I was doing a lot of design work and web work at the time. So, um, it was my first business. We, you know, I had a a partner, but it was, you know, I was doing a lot of the work and we were, uh, picking up, you know, projects here and there. Uh, and, and it was all going through the Brooklyn Idea Foundry. So uh, this was my my side freelance work doing creative work in addition to, to other things as well. Um, a couple of the lessons that I learned from it pretty early on was, um, you know, if you wanna, I couldn't grow it uh, as much as I wanted to uh, because I didn't have the, the support around me. I could do the work, the work was great, but I really needed to, Uh, manage all the other components and the components of actually, uh, you know, having meetings and and planning and kind of going after new business and so on and so forth. So I I just didn't have the time or wasn't ready for that. And that stuck with me, right? And and I needed to, to kind of understand a little bit more about business. And that's kind of what drove me to, you know, think about, go after that MBA, right? Just learn more about uh, learn more about business, learn more about how do you, you know, you can do the work, but how do you uh, convince people that, that you're the right person to do that work or your company is the right company to do that work. Um, so that's, I think that was the biggest lesson from from the Idea Foundry. I did not realize that that was your first company. I should have done a little bit more homework, I guess. That's awesome. By the way, I love, <laughs> I love the name. I love, I love, like foundry is just such a powerful world word in in and yeah. of itself but yeah. like you throw idea there and you know brooklyn right and like the grit that is associated with brooklyn and that's just i mean it's just a beautiful name beautiful name so well done there um thank you i guess a, a quick follow-up question to that then is have you always been 
entrepreneurial. It, I mean, it sounds like you've been a tinkerer, right? And many entrepreneurs are, you know, can't help themselves, but uh, tinker. And so, um, but like, there's one thing to go and be a great engineer, right? It's, it's one thing to go and pursue um, engineering and you can make a, you know, killer living and you can have a very successful career as, as an engineer. It's another thing though to, you know, not just be a technical person, but also a business person, right? And to channel a lot of those skill sets into um, an actual business, a business that you own. So at what point in time did you decide, you know what, I really like this entrepreneurship thing? Has that always been a part of you? Or talk to us a little bit, a little bit about like, um, what the, you know, what your desire, if and, if and when yep. a, a, a pivot happened in sort of your desire to like move outside of just engineering and, and become sort of a, an owner of a, a business or anything that you can speak to to share a little bit more about the why behind your decision to expand outside of just one lane. Yeah. Well, if it was up to my parents, I would still be working for a company or, you know, the government or something like that. So, <laughs> um, you know, because of um, being an entrepreneur was not a desirable trait, you know, you know, back where uh, in Albania, um, not, you know, entrepreneurship was seen as, hey, you can't make you can't be a doctor you can't be a lawyer you can't be you can't work for the government so you you have your own thing right uh it was not until i came here to the us that i got introduced to a lot of the um you know the entrepreneurs of uh, that we all love and and talk about today um the the thing that attracted me to being an entrepreneur was was this this idea that i could actually um drive my own success, right? So I could actually drive the outcome. I didn't have to ask permission from anybody. I didn't have to go through, you know, um, presentation. I could actually make decisions really quickly. So that's the thing that drove me. And, um, and, and the part that I realized really early on was I could, um, I, I could bet on myself and I knew that I had plan A, like the best case scenario, and I had plan Z. And as long as I could live with plan Z, then it was okay, right? So that was the mindset that really, or that was the time that changed how I thought about, you know, being an entrepreneur, right? It's like, what's the worst that could happen, right? And then just take that risk, right? This, what's the worst that can happen? If the worst, if you can live with it, then go for it. <laughs> very well said. Very well said. So, talk to us about the role that you played in the origin story of Spark Four Fifty One. So, Spark Four Fifty One is a company that many of our listeners are probably familiar with or have at least heard a little bit about. And um, you know, it's my understanding that Spark 451 really sort of like laid the groundwork for what would eventually become Element 451. So can you just talk to us a little bit about the Spark story and how that fits into the Element story? Yeah, I wanna go back to the people connection. So during my MBA, uh, one of the other Spark founders, Mike, uh, Mike and I, we uh, we really connected, and so we, as we we're doing the MBA together, um, you know, one of the promises that we said is, hey, if we're going to open our own businesses, we should like we definitely need to call each other first and and have that. Well, fast forward a couple of years, Mike uh, decided that he was jumping ship from the other company that he was working with, and then um, you know I was one of the phone calls, so. Um, I, you know, I remember very clearly we met at a Starbucks down in, in Brooklyn, Dumbo, and uh, we kind of discussed what the, uh, you know, how we were going to work together and what the, uh, the partnership was going to be like and, and how it was going to come on board. So after that, then we moved quickly and um, I needed to unwind my time at at NYU, so it took me it took me a couple of months to to kind of move away from that while I was uh, playing a, a role still at Spark just to to get up and running as a startup, right? So in 2012, um, 
I made the jump completely to now becoming CTO of Spark at Spark 451. Um, and at the same time, there was a lot of change happening in my life as well. Um, I bought my first house. Um, we were having our first uh, our first baby. So there was just a lot of things going on. So looking back at it now, it's like, okay, don't make that many changes all at once unless, <laughs> um, you, know, unless you just want to get it out of the way. But the the spark story is really interesting because you know it goes back to you know us meeting during the mba and kind of connecting and, and kind of uh, moving forward with that idea so it was always something that we were going to do together and it just happened to be um you know this was spark 451 yeah and and spark 451 for those who are not aware i probably should have said this earlier it's a marketing and advertising agency, right? That primarily or exclusively serves higher education institutions. It does well. It does right now. Um, one of the the larger uh, clients that that we had non higher ed was actually uh, ABC Television and now Disney as well. Um, that was one of Mike's connections. So, so that is uh, the five percent of the business that is not higher education. But um, uh, we did some really interesting projects for them, which is which is great. So. How does the element story start? Can you walk us yep. through some key sort of like pivotal moments? You're at Spark, you're CTO. At what point in time does element come into the picture? And then what ultimately was it that inspired you to spin off element as its own company? Yeah. So element as the product or kind of the technology or the solution, it was not a new idea, right? So I had like while working at NYU, we were building uh, this layer of user experience on top of some of the existing products for admissions. And I was working really closely with another person that would become pivotal, JC Bonilla. He was the director of admissions at the time um, uh, for the graduate uh, enrollment there. And we were building this user experience on top of Hobson's Connect or Apply Yourself. And we were tying it really nicely with the website to kind of make a seamless experience because we thought that we needed to do that in order to give the student the best uh, experience um, on the web. So that idea kind of stuck. And then as I uh, started working as the CTO at, at Spark, uh, we were doing a lot of uh, web work. So we were doing um, building full website redesigns using Drupal and a few other technologies at the time. Uh, that was kind of my, my forte, right? The architecture and everything. But we were also doing a lot of direct marketing and we we're doing a lot of um, a student outreach and search campaigns, right? So schools are buying college board names and so on and so forth. And we needed to provide a, a kind of a consistent um, personalized uh, messaging and personalized uh, experiences for those students. So in order to do that, we really needed to work with a lot of data. And that's kind of where the idea came about. It's like, well, why can't we just have a centralized data um, you know, centric approach to this where we bring all the data, we're enriching, we're doing segmentation, and then we can add uh, some of that great UX in front of it. So we can now start sending personalized communications to really great looking landing pages. And then we build more and more components on top of, of that solution, ultimately because we could not find a great um, option at the time to do this uh, personalized landing pages or uh, personalized microsites that we're doing or mobile first applications that we we're doing at the time. So that's kind of where the idea came from. We, we needed it internally and we were running about 50 or so institutions at the time, but you know, there was, there was no HubSpot at the time, right? There was no, um, you know, the, the sales, Salesforce, UI, there was no Salesforce Lightning or yeah. any of these things, right? So the, the platforms were very limiting. So we needed to, we kind of start building it ourselves. And, and that's kind of where the, the core came from. So you you guys built it, you're using it at for Spark customers, presumably. And then at what point do you think, or how did, I guess, conversations come about of, you know what, we should invest more in this 
what was becoming a very powerful, very dynamic platform. And what specifically, if you can remember, um, was it that inspired you to spin this off, right? Because because why not? Like you could just make the argument, well, just keep building it at Spark, right? Just make this beautiful, awesome system. It just becomes another offering uh, that Spark 451 has. Why actually spin it off into its own tech company? Well, we kind of started that way, right? So we, we started by saying, hey, we want to offer this to our clients. And pretty early on, we found that um, we were competing internally, the resources internally were competing with, you know, putting more resources on the product versus building, let's say a website. So our engineering time, my time was kind of split between these things. And you saw it when you're getting a large contract. Now all of the talent was getting sucked into that contract because you needed to focus on that and you had the deadline. Whereas the product, you didn't necessarily have a deadline, but how do you put more resources into that? Um, So that was the friction internally that led us to say, you know what, we can't really do this and it's not sustainable. And I really believed in the product because I saw the product as an amplification of the work that we were doing day to day, Mm. all the best practices that we were doing. Like I saw that as, can we just take that and then bake it into the product, right? Um, And now we can scale that a lot faster. So, so that's, the part that I saw and, and I felt that we needed, like it needed to grow at a very different pace than, um, than the, the services side. Um, and that's where I, the friction became real. And we kind of spun it off with the idea that now that they're, it's a different entity, we can market it separately. We can grow it at a different pace than, you know, the, the services. And then the resources are completely split. So we have our own PL and we have our own, um, our own company, um, and and of course, you know, capital then becomes really interesting. It's like, well, how do you fund this thing? So, so that's another kind of friction point where uh, it wasn't just we need to grow it faster, but also what does it need from a capital perspective to grow it faster, right? Um, we, the product was perhaps two, three years ahead of its time as a startup. So when we, um, we spun it out, the idea was let's just now go and get some external capital. We had a really hard time the first year going out, um, and telling the story that we have a very rock solid product, but we don't have, um, we don't have our own customers just yet. So Spark was a customer, was a really big customer. And everybody saw that and said, mm, I don't know if that's if that's good enough for us, right? We, sure. we need you to have moved and get your own clients before we see you as a successful startup or as, a, as somebody who can repeat the process of, Um, having a product market fit, right? So that that notion of product market fit was really important. It's like, can you sell this over and over or to to multiple institutions before we actually see how this is going to work? And for the first year, that was really tough because we now had um, the four partners that were at Spark, we were now equal partners at Element as well. And we were funding essentially both... um, uh, you know, both, both entities uh, from, you know, the, uh, from the revenue that was coming from, from the services side. Um, and, and you can totally understand how, you know, different folks have very different ownerships of, um, of the business. And, sure. and obviously they're going to advocate for growth in, in those different areas. So, sure. so that's where some of the friction um, uh, continuously uh, came around. So, I think that what I love, any you know thought you might have on somebody who is in a similar situation or um, one of the things I guess just happening in higher ed, right, is that there's a lot of like acquisition happening of different uh, mm-hmm. uh, businesses, right? You see CRM companies being uh, gobbled up by services agencies. You see the reverse happening. You also see, you know, tech companies in in higher education sort of like merging and growing, et cetera. Um, And I think one of the big challenges for folks, right, is like, okay, well, 
yeah, when you are in a company that does have competing priorities and maybe you have some software, maybe you have a robust services offerings, maybe you, you know, have technology enabled services, which are very different from your marketing uh, services, et cetera. It's like, how do you decide sort of like where resources go? And I guess if you could go back to your days at Spark before, before sort of the split happened, like, do you think a company can like successfully do all like, can, can, can an operation successfully be a fantastic CRM, you know, platform and also have a state of the art sort of marketing, branding, advertising services portfolio, or like, are we kind of kidding ourselves if we think that we can do both really, really well within the context of one brand? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a tough question from like, for me, I don't think you can do both really well because one, unless you have very clear um, separation in, in your business, but if it's the same people who are working on the service and the product, it becomes really difficult. If you think about it, look at, um, look at MailChimp, the MailChimp story, um, that's a very, and, and even a hotspot for that matter, but the MailChimp story, it's very, um, it's one of the stories that I, it keeps reminding me of, you know, the, the power of product versus service, right? Mm. Um, MailChimp started, the, the guys who started MailChimp, they, um, they had a, a web design business. Right. So that's what they started. So they had, they had a bunch of clients and, and one of the things that their clients were asking them all about, and if you don't, if you haven't heard the story, you probably should go um, and, and listen to how I built this and, and you can kind of take a look at that. But yeah. Um, so they started the web design business and the client wanted to send email HTML emails out and they built this little thing that was able, they were able to, to send that out. And at first they were offering it for free but then what they saw is that most of the usage and, and sometimes most of the, the um, I would say profit, but the revenue was coming from this little tool that they had built and they were still holding on to the service side. So it was not until they decided, no, we're going to start investing more and we're actually going to cut off the, the services side in order until MailChimp kind of took off, right? Yeah. So then once they made that tool recurring, they focused on it, they started marketing and branding around it. It kind of took off. And we all know the story today, right? Yeah. It's, it's a huge success story. But I don't think it's possible to have both of those in the same uh, company unless one is really serving the other, hmm. right? If you have a... Um, if you have a software that requires services, then it becomes really easy to scale that. But you can't have two lines of business independent of each other um, within the same company. At least that is my opinion, right? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, I asked for your thoughts. So that's that's totally yeah. fair. No, and I, I do think it's interesting just as like an observer of like all of the you know, acquisition happening, I think right now, uh, and, and mergers happening right now, I, I'll be really curious to see like, like who are the folks that can like pull things off really well. And then who are the folks that, that don't, um, what things do we see, you know, shut down in yeah. the next couple of years versus like, oh, wow, Hey, here's a, an example of an organization that was able to successfully do this. And then what was it like, what was the recipe? Uh, what was, you know, the, the mix of ingredients that, um, was necessary in order to successfully pull this kind of like dual operation off. Um, so yeah, I think the jury's still out, but, um, appreciate your insight there. So I want to talk a little bit about a little bit more about sort of like you stepping into this new role, right? So you are CTO at spark, you working a ton on the development of the element product. You eventually spin this off. You become CEO of element. What was hardest about the, transition from being a CTO to a CEO, especially once you sort of like lost a lot of the resources that you had presumably had at Spark? 
Um, the chain, the one, your CTO, you're focusing on product, you're focusing on technology. Of course you have your own team and you know, you're not thinking about how do I grow the business or how, how do all the pieces fit together? Um, the, the huge change is now, well, I'm responsible for a lot more than technology, right? And, and kind of becoming a, a CEO, you're now responsible for for everyone in the company, like for the, um, you know, for the success of the company as a whole, and not just one specific part of it, and not just the technology. Of course, we drove with technology, but it's a it's a complete, uh, you know, change in in how you're operating and kind of what's important. So it becomes more about uh, the people that you have in your team, and how do you um, how do you fit those people as part of an organization, and how do you build culture, and how do you build a, a great organization through kind of the people that you hire, and how you do how you train, and how you operate, and kind of that culture that you build, rather than uh, focusing on just the output, mm. right? So it, it's a lot more about culture, and that's that was the biggest change for me, and. As a as a technologist, as somebody who's kind of an introvert by nature, it was it was really hard. Hmm. Like it, it's it's really difficult to, um, you know, to be the the I don't say the cheerleader, but the, the cheerleader of the company. It's really hard to, um, you know, clearly communicate your vision, uh, communicate where you're going. Um, and then make sure that everybody is kind of rowing in the same direction and, and providing the guidelines and, and the, those guardrails. So if you're, if all you want to do is, hey, I want to build stuff, um, it's a completely different mindset yeah. or, or, or set of challenges. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I can imagine. Um, you know, you go from operating in sort of like one lane and then all of a sudden you're responsible for the whole highway, right? Like, and I, I can imagine that that just comes with lots of excitement, but also a lot, little bit of scary. Um, so I, I'm curious just as a follow-up question to that, like, what would you, like, what do you think you're really great at when it comes to being a CEO? And then what do you think that you just suck at, right? Or like you, you want to get better at, but like at this particular moment, like, you know, deep down, it's like, damn it. Like I am just not great at this one thing. Um, how would you, I guess, talk about sort of your strengths as CEO and some of your challenges as CEO? Yeah. Uh, I, I think myself as a systems person, so I like to put systems in place. And one of my strengths is figuring out who the right people are, you know, for the right jobs and, and kind of how to, um, kind of put something together as a company that, you know, gets us there, like that vision part. I, I think I'm, I'm really good at that. Uh, and then on the course on the technology, but the one thing that I'm not that good. And the thing that I'm working with is this, this idea of an, you know, this emotional intelligence component. Um, I, it's one of the things that I work the hardest on. And one of the things that I do more, most of my, uh, my reading about, and most of my, my research and a lot of the books that I, I kind of consume, but it's a, it's a work in progress. It's one of those things that doesn't come naturally, right? Just because, um, I, I think, Hey, you should, this is the way you should be doing it. You know, here's the guidelines here's, and then it's like, it's very clear and dry to me as an engineer. And I think about it that way, but there's just so much more that goes into it. Like pe- <laughs> we're emotional beings. So, you know, we have to be bought into that vision. We have to be bought into what we're doing. And it's not about just, Hey, here's a task. you got to complete it. Um, especially today and kind of the knowledge work that we're doing, there's just so much more that goes into it. We need to feel emotionally safe and we need to, to buy into the mission. We need to be mission driven. So it's not necessarily just, I come into work, I do my work, I get a paycheck. It's a lot more than that. So, so that's the part that's difficult. And that's the part that I'm learning a lot about. And I'm, I'm getting better at it every day, but there's just so much there. Good answer. Good answer. So couple final questions for you. And the first one is when I ask every single person that comes on this show. And that question is to walk us through 
an oh shit moment. So a time when you thought this idea just really might go nowhere, that it that it might crash and burn, that you had, you know, it was a terrible decision to separate from Spark or whatever it might have been, right? Like the voice in your head, yeah. the negative, the negative voice in your head. Um, walk us through a moment where it really did feel like crisis. And then how did you escape that mindset? Like, how did you sort of like champion through the doubt? Yeah. Um, so as we, during our first, um, first year uh, separated from Spark, as we were funding uh, Element um, from the revenue, one of the things that we were uh, doing is kind of reducing that funding more and more and more. And the idea was that we we're going to be able to find uh, a VC firm. So that's the part that we're having a little bit of a hard time. And there was a time, a period of time where um, we really went at it and it's like, well, we're not going to be able to fund any element anymore. And if we don't find external funding, then, you know, too bad. Like we'll just gonna uh, either bring, the software back into the fold, or we're going to find alternative ways of, um, uh, you know, alternative ways of, of kind of breaking it up. Yeah. Uh, my, uh, that was something that was really hard for me because I didn't have full control over that decision. So it was, it was one of those, Oh shit moments where I had a lot of people that I had kind of brought along and, communicated the vision and everything. And then now it's, it's this thing that I, I don't have control over. Uh, and we were running out of, we were running out of cash and it just, it, it made me um, realize that sometimes you, um, you need like as a startup, everybody says, Hey, cash is King, or you gotta, you gotta make sure that you have your reserve, you know, you gotta have money and runway there. And that was, my first lesson in entrepreneurship and the startup entrepreneurship is damn, like I, like I have no more runway. I need yeah. to make something happen. Yeah. Otherwise this whole thing can just blow up. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's terrifying. Um, yeah. cause when you run out of funds, I mean, you know, all, all you have left is, is passion and, um, you might, that might be, you know, that might have been enough to keep you going for a little while, but like pretty soon your team starts wanting that paycheck. So, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, people can be, so one of the, one of the people that really helped me along there and it was really a, uh, someone that, um, was JC and JC Bonilla. And he was, um, kind of a, you know, a really good, um, kind of second person, uh, here at element, but also as a, a really good friend and kind of, um, I was able to level with him and he was able to help me along with, with kind of making some of the decisions and, and kind of making sure that, that I stood, I stood the course as I was doubting myself. So, so just bounce things off of other people. Right. Yeah. So have, have a confidant that you can, you can share that stuff with, um, that's might not necessarily be your, your spouse. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I like that. And, you know, I think that another helpful sort of like reminder for folks is like, look, your problems, right. At the end of the day, they're not that unique. Right. So like what the friction that you're encountering, like the, the challenges that you're facing right now, somebody has probably been down that road before, or at least down a very, exactly. very similar road. And so I think it's worth, um, worth remembering as well. So final question for you. Um, what's something that's not on your LinkedIn profile that you're especially proud of accomplishing over the course of your career? Um, I mean, you have, the one thing that I'm really proud of is, is kind of where I am in my family life right now. Um, I have a, a wonderful, you know, wonderful wife and, and partner who is uh, really giving me the the support that I need to kind of be where, where I need to be in, in, on the business side. And then I have two wonderful kids that are, um, just remind me every day. It's like, Hey, you know, there's, there, there's a lot more than just work and, and, an element. And, uh, so they kind of take me away and pull me away. So those are, those two things, those things are, re I'm really proud of, um, career wise. Um, I, I don't know if there's anything special, but one of the things that I 
really loved to do uh, was teaching. And as I was at NYU and as I, I was teaching, the thing that I'm really proud of is seeing the students that I taught now have very successful companies and startups and essentially kind of bypass me by, by leaps and bounds in terms of what they're able to do and kind of their valuations and all of these things. And, and seeing that, it's just so rewarding, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and it's kind of a, a you know, point of pride, right? So you can point, it's like, hey, I taught that student. <laughs> I like that. That's a, that's a fantastic answer. Um, and I, yeah, I, a point of pride and then also sort of, you know, just probably even now, right? Some, some encouragement to, okay, you know, if they can do it and I taught them, then I can keep hustling and I, I can make this into something. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. Well, like, if he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, Artis, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story with us. And I learned a lot about you, um, which was which was exciting and whatnot. And hopefully our listeners did as well. And for folks who want to learn a little bit more about you, uh, learn a little bit more about Element as a product, we'll have all the fun sort of special links to all the good you know pages and content offers, et cetera, listed below in the show notes. But thank you for, for coming on. I really appreciate the time. Thanks for having me, Zach. Always a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Starter Stories. Starter Stories is brought to you by Enrollify, a learning community for enrollment managers and higher ed marketers. Enrollify was built to empower enrollment marketers with the ideas, the strategies, and the tools that they need to optimize the resources that they do have to generate the results that they need. You can explore our other podcasts or sign up for one of our newsletters or watch an episode of Frideas, our weekly video segment at enrollify.org. Oh, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button or leave us a review. And if you like what we're about, share this content with a friend. Finally, if you know a founder in the ed tech or education consulting space that you think we should have on this show, please send me an email directly at Zach, that's Z-A-C-H, at enrollify.org.